Today, we continue our discussion about Lenin's theory of imperialism. Compelled by the expand or die nature of the capitalist system, nearly the entire globe was divided up by the imperialist powers by the end of the 19th century. They then turned to catastrophic world war as the only available means to grow their empire. But by the middle of the 20th century, it became clear that this had led to the rise of a block of socialist states that threatened the existence of capitalism itself. Inter-imperialist competition took a backseat as a new era of global class war began. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Real Story on The Socialist Program. I'm Walter Smolarek and I'm joined by Brian Becker in what will be a multi-part series on a socialist view of contemporary imperialism. In 2015, Brian initiated a project to produce the book, Imperialism in the 21st Century, updating Lenin's theory a century later. We'll discuss the core ideas from this book and weigh in on how the situation has further evolved since its publication. Well, Brian, why don't we just start off by having you explain why we're doing this series, why we wrote and published the book Imperialism in the 21st Century. Thanks, Walter. Of course, this is our second episode in the series. The first was a few weeks ago. We explained some of the core issues about why we published the book, but I think it's worthwhile to reiterate them. We republished Lenin's works, Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism, which was written in 1916 in the middle of the First World War, the war that you alluded to. We republished that book, but because it was 100 years later, and although we agreed with the core thesis of Lenin, obviously the thesis, if it's to be relevant today, had to be updated because a lot has changed in the last 100 years. And of course, when you look at the last hundred years, the dynamic changes in global politics, the decolonization period that was dominating world politics after World War II, finally the collapse of the Soviet Union and the socialist bloc countries, and the beginning of what the US at least hoped would be a unipolar period or a unipolar era of US domination. When you look at all of that, you have to come to the conclusion that Lenin must be updated if you want to even assert that the core conclusions in the book are correct. And that was the real reason we published the two books at once. One, the original Lenin Imperialism, The Highest Stage of Capitalism, and secondly, our own six or seven chapters that update Lenin's thesis with an evaluation of that past century. And Brian, I mean, Lenin's writing is polemic. All of Lenin's writing is essentially polemic. What about imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism? I mean, who is it a polemic against and what was its significance in the context of the socialist movement at the time? Yeah, very, very important point. Lenin in this book and in all of his writings is basically fighting with somebody. 
we have to read Lenin or Marx for that matter from a point of view of what they were really trying to accomplish when they wrote. Lenin never wrote on any subject because it was of interest to him. Everything that Lenin wrote, and you have 46 volumes that constitute Lenin's collected works. If you go through those 46 volumes, which I would strongly recommend, if you look at all of those volumes, you see that each and every article is designed to win an argument. And the argument that Lenin was making in 1916 was against other socialists. In fact, it was against the majority of socialists, against the primary and biggest socialist parties in the world, the parties that constituted what was at that time called the Second International or the Socialist International, because those parties at the beginning of World War I, which was August 1914, ended up supporting their own governments as their governments insisted that the workers of their countries go to war against the workers of other countries. Before the war started, the workers and the socialist parties had said, as Marx and Engels had said in the Communist Manifesto, workers of the world must unite. And if there is an imperialist war, a war between the imperialists, a war between those governments that pursue a policy or engage in a strategy of colonization, if there's a war between them, we, the workers, will stand together, regardless of whether we're French or German or British or Chinese or Arab, regardless of our race, our nationality, our ethnicity, we'll stand together, we'll fight together against the common enemy. And the common enemy is not the workers of another country. The common enemy, as the Second International writings were very clear, were the capitalists in those different countries who sent their workers to war for their interests, meaning the interests of the bourgeoisie, the interests of the capitalists. So at the beginning of the war, before the awfulness of the war is acknowledged, before it sets in, before the bodies come back or the people come back missing arms and legs or eyes, before that period, there's a sort of a period where there's national unity in a hysteria, and everybody puts their hand on their heart and pledges allegiance to their flag, regardless of what country it is. Under those circumstances, it was very hard to stand up and say, no, we're going to stick to our principles, we're going to oppose the war. And all of those socialist parties, almost all of them, not all of them, but almost all of them, capitulated, including the German Socialist Party, which was by far the flagship party in the Second International a party that had one third of all of the seats in parliament, the German Reichstag, that was the German Socialist Party. It was the biggest party in Germany. And so when the German Socialist Party capitulated to the war and Lenin read about that, he read about it in a newspaper, he was actually in a state of disbelief. He was like, no, the German party could not completely capitulate. Only one member of the German Socialist Party in the Reichstag, in the parliament, actually voted no. That was Karl Liebknecht. All of the others capitulated. Lenin was in a state of disbelief. But sure enough, they did capitulate. And it wasn't just the Germans. It was the French, the British, all over the European continent, including inside of Russia, the Mensheviks, the social revolutionaries. They, too, supported the war effort. And each country used a different socialist-sounding 
rationale to justify the reversal of their earlier commitment to oppose the war. So they had to have something that would sound somewhat credible. So in the case of Germany, for instance, they could say, well, we're not necessarily for the German bourgeoisie, but if we lose the war, if the Russians win, we'll be subjected to the czar. We'll be living under an absolutist monarchy. Under those circumstances, it's justified. And the Russians said, well, look, we're not for the czar necessarily, but we're fighting a war for self-defense. And so thus it's justifiable. And the Bolsheviks in Russia or the Serbian Socialist Party or Eugene Debs later in the United States, those who took an anti-war position were horribly prosecuted, horribly repressed. In the case of the Russian socialists, all five members of the Bolsheviks who were in the Duma, the sort of semi-fake parliament that existed in Russia, all of them were not only removed from the parliament, but they were put on trial and they were facing the death penalty. The other leaders of the Bolsheviks were imprisoned or sent to Siberia. Some were killed. So it was terribly hard to stand up against the war. And Lenin takes to work in 1915 and 1916 to explain basically the capitulation of the socialist parties and also to explain to the working classes of all the different countries why they should not be duped, why they should not support their own ruling class. And he makes the argument, this prescient argument, and this is why this book is still so relevant today. He makes the argument that the war is not for a noble cause on the part of any of the competing bourgeoisies, the competing capitalists, that each of them have their own predatory interests. And those interests are to redivide an already divided world, divided meaning that the so-called third world, Africa, Asia, the Middle East, Latin America, had already been divided up among the competing imperialists. They did it peacefully before World War I. But World War I was a signal that they could no longer peacefully redivide the world and that they resorted to military means. You know, the Prussian military theorist who Lenin always quoted, von Clausewitz, he said, war is an extension of politics, but by other means. And what Lenin tried to show in his book that politics too is nothing other than concentrated economics. And so he's trying to make the argument, he does make the argument that this is a new stage of capitalism. He says the, the modern day capitalists are monopoly capitalists and as a consequence of monopoly capitalism and the division, the full division of the world into colonies, semi-colonies and spheres of influence, that the only way that different competing capitalists could sort of expand rather than contract and contraction means death in capitalism. It's an inherently expansionist economic system, they had to fight each other to take each other's colonies. So this is the basic premise of Lenin's book, that none of the bourgeoisies can be fighting a war for a progressive purpose. And in fact, Walter, he goes out of his way to make it easy for working class and socialist people to understand some of the characteristic features of this new stage of capitalism. We reviewed some of them in our last segment, but I want you to sort of go over it again for the audience. Yeah, absolutely. So these are the five characteristic features of the imperialist stage of capitalism, according to Lenin. One, the concentration of production and capital has been developed to such a high stage that it has created monopolies, which play a decisive role in economic life. Two, 
the merging of bank capital with industrial capital and the creation on the basis of this financial capital of a financial oligarchy. The third characteristic feature that Lenin points out is the export of capital as distinguished from the export of commodities acquires exceptional importance. Fourth characteristic feature, the formation of international monopolist capitalist associations which share the world among themselves. And fifth, the territorial division of the whole world among the biggest capitalist powers is completed. So those are the five characteristic features that Lenin identified. And certainly, I think that those still define modern day capitalism. Okay, let's go again, just do a little quick historical march through the 20th century, so to speak. World War I comes to an end in 1918. Part of the reason it ended is that the Russian workers and peasants and soldiers rose up, overthrew the Tsar, and then went on and had a second revolution in October or November, depending on what calendar you're using. And the first socialist government is brought into existence, and it's in Russia. I mean, Russia was not the most populated country in the world, but it certainly had the largest landmass, and it stretched all the way from Europe all the way to the Pacific Ocean. So the idea that the working class, the peasants, could seize power and retain power, hold the power, was something quite remarkable. I mean, the imperialists tried to do everything, as Winston Churchill said, to strangle the Bolshevik baby in its crib. Fourteen imperialist armies invaded. Three million more people died after World War I in what was called the Russian Civil War. And yet the Bolsheviks succeeded. They consolidated power at great loss, of course. But that sort of begins to change the 20th century politics because in addition to the imperialist countries, you have a major socialist country where the working class has seized power and retained power. Now, move the video up 20 years, though, and the same phenomena that Lenin talked about in his book in 1916 reasserts itself, and the world goes to war once again in what is known as World War II. Walter, in many ways, the Allies or the Axis powers, as we know them in popular vernacular, that's not necessarily how they were described at that time, it's the same block of capitalist countries, in essence, in World War II as there was in World War I. And again, the world had never seen anything like this, where in a matter of a few years, in the case of World War I, 1914 to 1918, as many as 20 million human beings were, were killed in four years. And then in World War II, between the end of the 1930s and 1945, when the war finally ends with the Japanese surrender, as many as 80 million people are killed. So World War II is a repeat. So I want, if you would, help us understand who was fighting whom, and also the importance of the outcome of World War I, the Russian Revolution, also the outcome of World War II has a revolutionary side to it. The world starts to change where the Soviet Union as the single sole socialist country, isolated as it was, starts to have its isolation broken down because the sheer magnitude of the violence and the death and destruction of World War II starts to change the world and leads to revolution once again. That's right. So in the run-up to World War I, which began in 1914 and ended in 1918, 
two rival imperialist blocs were formed. On the one hand, you had the United Kingdom, France, and Russia. They were joined later in really the last phase of the war by the United States at the end of 1917. And then on the other hand, you had Germany for some of the war, Italy, Austria-Hungary, and the Ottoman Empire, which actually completely collapsed at the conclusion of World War I and was sort of reformed as the modern-day Turkish Republic. So that was World War I. World War II, you had a similar bloc politics situation develop in the world, although with the very significant difference that there is now a socialist country, there is now the Soviet Union as a major player in world politics. So on the one hand, you had what we know today as the Axis powers, but actually their formal name is the Anti-Comintern Pact, the Anti-Communist International Pact. And so this was the alliance of fascist powers, essentially that were united in their opposition to communism, actually, as their sort of you know, reason for being. So that was Germany, Italy, the fascist regime under Mussolini in Italy, and Japan were the principal Axis powers. And they were joined by lesser fascist powers like Hungary, Bulgaria. And then on the other hand, you had the allies. And so that would be, at the onset of the war, the United Kingdom and France, Really, the true beginning of World War II is actually not in Europe. It's in East Asia when Japan invaded China. And so much of the fighting in the Pacific theater of World War II took place in China, not the you know, island-hopping U.S. invasions that we learn about in school. And then the Soviet Union also became part of that alliance after the Nazi invasion in August of 1941. So those were essentially the blocks. Now, the United States at the conclusion of World War II emerged as the dominant player in that allied bloc, correct? Indeed. So the sun finally was setting on the British Empire. The British Empire was in decline. It had suffered greatly in World War II. All of the countries of Europe and Japan, and of course, China, all of those countries had their cities laying in smoldering ruins by the end of World War II. They were devastated. And it was really only the United States where no part of the war was fought on the United States soil following the Japanese surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941. But that was a minor episode. The U.S. cities were intact. U.S. factories were humming. In fact, the United States became the war supplier for all of the other allied countries in World War II. And by the end of the war, while the rest of the capitalist world, which had, remember, been in depression, extreme depression during the 1930s, basically destroyed, basically destroyed. But here you have the United States still standing as the single sole superpower in capitalism and the United States did something that was really important for those who are socialists, those who are progressive, those who are anti-war, those who are internationalists to understand. The United States decided to embark on a path that would basically end what they called the scourge of war. When you look at the United Nations, which was created in 1946 in San Francisco, and which was an American project, a U.S. project, the United States wanted to end the repeated pattern of inter-imperialist war. 
They didn't want to have World War III. And the main reason that the United States was worried about World War III was not because World War I and World War II were so bad for the United States. In fact, they were quite good for the United States. They weren't good for the U.S. soldiers who died, and 450,000 U.S. soldiers died, and many hundreds of thousands more were wounded. It wasn't good for them. But the United States ended up, after World War I, as a stronger power, and after World War II, as the power. But what the United States wanted to do, and wanted to make sure would not happen again, is a World War III that would bring in or usher in a new third era of social revolutions led by socialists, led by communists. Because after World War II, the Soviet Red Army had swept into Central and Eastern Europe. It had created governments that were friendly to the Soviet Union. In the case of Yugoslavia, there was an independent indigenous revolution led by the partisans and led by Tito. In Czechoslovakia in 1948, there was a, almost a genuine workers' revolution, even though it was still the Red Army's presence in Czechoslovakia that was important. But more importantly than what was going on in Europe was that Asia became a cauldron for revolution. Revolutions in Vietnam, revolutions in Korea, the anti-colonial struggles in Indonesia, and the anti-colonial struggle in India. The people of Asia were rising up. And as they rose up, by the way, Marxism and revolution continued to gravitate to the East and then to the South. Marxism, which was born in Europe, starts to become a global phenomena. And revolution and socialist revolution become a thing that's on the agenda. And you could see that it wasn't even just in Asia. All over the world, the formerly colonized or semi-colonized people take up arms, and the Soviet Union supports them. And then in 1949, a few years later, but imperialists in Washington could certainly anticipate this, China has a revolution. And by the way, the Chinese revolution, which is, of course, in the most populous country in the world, that not only makes the Soviet Union not isolated, but changes the relationship of forces on a global scale. Because now two-fifths of the world's people are living in countries that have socialist governments. In addition to Asia and other parts of the world, in Europe, there was a near revolution in Greece, starting in 1946. There could certainly have been an attempted revolution in Italy and France because it was the communist parties of those two countries that led the armed resistance against the German occupation. So the United States is worried about the scourge of war, not because people die, but because it might mean the end of capitalism, because it might lead to more revolutions. So the UN is created as one part of a larger post-World War II scenario that was organized by Washington policymakers. Some of the key elements of it are the United Nations, where all the member states have a voice and they can work out their differences peacefully rather than going to war. Secondly, there's the creation of the International Monetary Fund. Third, the World Bank. And fourth, at the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944, as World War II was winding down, the United States adopts basically a policy whereby the dollar, the American dollar, becomes the reserve currency for the entire world. 
So the U.S. intends to use a unipolar superpower status in the military arena, also in the economic arena, certainly in the diplomatic and political arena, to basically muzzle or muffle inter-imperialist conflicts. It did something else too, though. Unlike at the end of World War I, where imperialism imposed sanctions on Germany, the Versailles Treaty imposed these terrible sanctions and reparations on Germany such that the German economy was collapsed that led to hyperinflation and eventually the victory of Hitler, who in turn became a trigger for the onset of World War II, the U.S. decided to revive not only its allied friends, whose, as I said, whose cities had been devastated, that would be Britain and France, it also decided to revive Germany and Japan, its defeated adversaries. And so this new world order was created, or that was the expectation, whereby the United States would create a block of a unifying block, a united front of the imperialists who had been at war against each other in World War I and World War II, and to unite them under the U.S. leadership. And the U.S. would, the quid pro quo was they would be junior partners. They wouldn't fight each other. They certainly wouldn't challenge and fight the U.S. hegemonic position in the world. And they would be rewarded by getting larger market share. So the U.S. spent billions, hundreds of billions for the Marshall Plan. It rebuilt Europe. It rebuilt Germany. It also rebuilt Japan. Yes, it still militarily occupied these countries, but it let them become rich again. It didn't try to impoverish them. And then, as you can see, during this 45, 1945 to 1950 period, the United States is confronted by the revolutionary developments in Asia and by the creation of new socialist governments. By 1948, Eastern and Central European governments, which Stalin and the Soviets had hoped would be neutral countries. They weren't looking to socialize them in 1945. If anything, Stalin and the Soviet leadership was hoping for peace. They needed peace. They had just lost 27 million people. They were hoping that Eastern Europe would be neutral and that it wouldn't be the staging ground for World War III, another German-like invasion of the Soviet Union as happened at the beginning of the 1940s. But by 1948, and as a consequence of American hostility in what we now call the Cold War, the Soviet government gave the go-ahead for the communists to actually take all of the governmental power in the Eastern and Central European countries. So now you have the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. And by the way, Eastern Europe, and especially East Germany, the living standard of those countries, because they were more Western countries, were actually higher than the Soviet living standards. Of course, you know, remember in 1917, when the Russian Revolution happened, the Soviet economy was one twelfth the size of the U.S. economy. So you have Eastern and Central Europe, you have Russia or Soviet Union, North Korea, North Vietnam, and also China by 1949. That's the socialist bloc. And from then on, and this is the new stage of imperialism, we move from a multipolar world, the characteristic feature being inter-imperialist rivalry, that's World War I and World War II, to a new stage where the imperialists, instead of fighting each other, unite with each other under the leadership of the U.S. And they basically have an agreement that the U.S., as their leader, will challenge the continuing threat of revolution that 
is not only in Asia, it's in Africa, it's in the Middle East, it's in Latin America. And that the new stage of imperialism is what might be called the global class war. In other words, global class war instead of inter-imperialist war. And the characteristic feature of this class war and is disguised because the form of the struggle between the socialist bloc and the capitalist bloc is still appearing to be a fight between nations. United States on one hand, along with Britain and France and Germany and Japan. On the other hand, the Soviet Union, China, Vietnam, Korea, these are nation states. So it looks like a war between nations or blocks of nations. But from our point of view, from the point of view of those who wrote this book, Imperialism in the 21st Century, the appearance of the fight between nations masks the class character of this global conflict, that it's really a war between classes, the working class, the poor, the poor peasantry. Finally, by 1949, 1950, it has state power. It's able to recreate society, reorganize society, reconstruct society, exempt their societies from imperialist penetration, rely on each other for financial aid and trade and defense and, and assistance. And so the so-called Cold War, which wasn't cold for Koreans and it wasn't cold for Vietnamese and it wasn't cold for the people in the Congo and so many other countries, but the so-called Cold War was really a class war on a global scale. And you can see wherever the colonized people were rising up against the former colonizers or against the apartheid system, say in South Africa, the socialist bloc supported the rebellious people. The imperialists supported the old ruling classes. So the global class war, masked as a war between nations or blocks of nations, actually plays itself out in every country in the world where the communists and the socialist bloc are aiding and supporting national liberation movements competing with the imperialists who are either trying to defeat those national liberation movements if they're led by communists or to defeat the communists and handpick a neo-colonial puppets who could take the place of a sincerely and genuinely revolutionary leadership to make them not the colonized people, but as Nkrumah from Ghana said brilliantly in the 1960s, they became the neo-colonial puppets, a kind of a colonialism in a new form. That's what's going on, Walter, between 1945 and 1950. And it really becomes crystal clear with the beginning of the Korean War, June 25th, 1950, which in many ways becomes the center, the very, very center of the global class war. And I think it's important for us to talk about it. And again, as you well know, the Korean War not only signals the beginning of the real global class war, and it comes just nine months after the Chinese revolution succeeds, it also becomes the pretext for the creation of the U.S. military industrial complex, which did not exist before the Korean War. Before the Korean War, when wars ended, the U.S. military demobilized and military production was converted back to civilian use. That, in fact, happened after World War II, and immediately by 1948, the U.S. was slipping into another recession, what might have been a repeat of the 1930s depression. The Korean War becomes, in a way, the pretext for the creation of 
the military-industrial complex. And I think it's important for us to spend a little bit of time on the Korean War, which sadly, tragically, but for good reason, is known here in the United States as the Forgotten War. By the way, the North Koreans call it the Fatherland Liberation War, but it was waged between 1950 and 1953. That's right. It was it was a genocidal war waged by U.S. imperialism. Curtis LeMay, who was the head of the U.S. Air Force at the time and who would go on to become a prominent defender of this Jim Crow apartheid system in the United States, truly, truly a fascist, Curtis LeMay, he bragged that the United States military killed one fifth of the population of North Korea during the war. One fifth. I mean, the word for that is a genocide. And even though in the history books it says that the Korean War lasted from 1950 to 1953, immediately after the end of World War II, the United States turned their attention to Korea. One of the very first things they did immediately after Japan surrendered in World War II was the United States ordered their defeated Japanese former enemies to retain control of Korea stay in charge of Korea until you can be relieved by U.S. troops because they didn't want revolution to break out and take over the entire peninsula. Brian, talk to us a little bit more about the Korean War. What was its global significance? How did the war actually play out? And how did China enter the war, which was, of course, a major decisive development? Yeah, it's huge. And, it, and again, the reason we want to talk about it is not only because we want to learn more about Korea, which all of us need to do. We need to learn more about the Forgotten War, but because it really is an indicator of this new phase of imperialism. How so? On the one side, the supporters of North Korea were every socialist country. Every socialist country. And on the side of South Korea, Whereas every imperialist country, every capitalist country, I mean, that is so significant. It is an example that the war was now a realignment of world politics on a socialist versus capitalist basis. And again, for us as Marxists, we, unlike some smaller and we consider to be kind of reactionary trends within some parts of the socialist movement who denounce all of the socialist governments and always condemn them, we understand that these socialist governments were the first step, the first efforts in their country to reorganize society whereby the exploitation of some people, most people by some people, was ended to create a society where you have public ownership of the means of production, a planned economy, Societies where workers had the right to employment or a basic income, the right to affordable housing. These were unheard of achievements for the working class in the capitalist countries, where health care became free, where the priority became to extend the life expectancy of working class and poor people and to provide health care for them. I mean, when you look at all of the strides made by socialist governments that had revolutions in very, very poor parts of the world. They're like amazing social achievements. This was an example of the working class in power exercising control over state power for the benefit of its people. And all of those countries supported North Korea. Now, the United States created South Korea deliberately as an effort to stop the revolution in Korea. 
at the end of World War II, as you said, Walter, when the Japanese signed the unconditional surrender, unconditional, right? The United States conditioned their surrender on the fact that the Japanese troops that had colonized the people of Korea had turned the women into sex slaves, had created slave labor and brought Koreans to Japan. By the way, 25% of the people who died in the Nagasaki atomic bombing in Japan were Koreans because so many Japanese laborers had been brought from Korea to Japan. And yet the United States, which said that it was fighting a war for democracy and against fascism, tells the Japanese colonists, you stay in place in South Korea until we get there. And MacArthur finally arrives on September 9th, 1945. You know, he always said, I will return. Well, he was returning to reassume or reassert colonial domination over the Korean people. And then the United States flies from the United States, Sigmund Rhee, Sigmund Rhee, who becomes the president of South Korea. He's living in the United States. They fly him to South Korea. He becomes the president and he sets up a reign of terror. There were rebellions on Jeju Island. There was the famous Bodo League massacres. I actually went to South Korea, well, multiple times, but in 2001 with South Korean activists to look at the sites where there were these mass executions of workers and peasants and students who were considered to be sympathetic to Kim Il-sung. When I say big massacres, I'm talking about hundreds of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people, I'm not exaggerating, were massacred by Sigmund Rhee, and he was there as the puppet of the United States. In fact, the whole way Korea got divided was that Dean Rusk, who later became Secretary of Defense during the Kennedy and Johnson years and was overseeing the war in Vietnam, he was at that time a 38-year-old colonel in the U.S. Army. He and another guy, another colonel, went into a room one night and they looked at a National Geographic map of Korea. They didn't speak Korean. They didn't know anything about Korean culture. They looked at the map and they decided, oh, we're going to draw a line. They took a pen and drew a line across what was then the 38th parallel, leaving Seoul, the capital of Korea, in the southern zone, which would be occupied once MacArthur got there by the United States. And the northern part of Korea was going to be occupied by the Soviets. Now, the agreement was that both the Soviet Union and the United States would leave Korea by 1948. And in fact, both sides did leave Korea by 1948. And the North Koreans thought that the reign of terror that was being imposed on their compatriots, their comrades in the South, could be finally brought to an end by carrying out a military offensive on June 25th, 1950, after they themselves had been targeted endlessly and routinely for five years by the, the military forces of the South Koreans with the United States help. And when they launched their offensive at the end of June, the military forces were greeted by people's committees that sprung up all over South Korea, the workers and peasants who Sigmund Rhee had not killed. And within three days, those forces were at the southern tip of South Korea. 
meaning the country was about to be liberated. And the North Koreans undoubtedly thought now that America had, quote, left South Korea, they could really liberate their country. And they were propelled to do so because of the vicious, savage repression imposed on their compatriots in the South by the U.S. military dictatorship with the nominal head of Sigmund Rhee. It's very similar to how the North Vietnamese started to support the National Liberation Front when Diem, the U.S. puppet in South Vietnam, was slaughtering communists and socialists and progressive workers in the southern part of Vietnam in the 1950s. And it was on that basis that Vietnam started its counteroffensive in South Vietnam. Very similar situation. And this civil war, which was a class war between the workers and peasants in Korea, North and South, played itself out, finally reached a point of military climax with the invasion or the intervention. Maybe the North Koreans would say they were invaded first. Whoever, it doesn't matter really who fired the first shot. This was an ongoing civil war, a class war. And as that class war raged, why would the United States really care that much if North Korea unified the country under the leadership of Pyongyang? I mean, Korea, after all, was a small country, a poor country. I mean, yes, it has minerals, it has some natural resources. It wasn't really that important to U.S. imperialism. The U.S. military wouldn't have left in 1948, but for the fact that it wasn't that economically important. But the U.S. rushed to go to war in Korea because they understood that if the communists succeeded at liberating the southern part of Korea with the support of the Soviet Union and China, it would lead to a further revolutionary impetus in India, an impetus in what was then called Burma, in Indonesia, in all over Asia, which had become, as I said in the beginning, a cauldron a raging cauldron for revolution against colonialism in the aftermath of World War II. So Korea sort of fixes the lines for what was then the Cold War or then what we might call the global class war. The U.S. had anticipated that the end of World War II, there would be a unipolar world power, United States using the IMF, the World Bank, the United Nations, and Bretton Woods where the U.S. dollar was the world currency, to impose U.S. domination over the world. But it wasn't a unipolar world because the unexpected rise of revolution gave birth to socialist governments in two-fifths of the world, meaning the world's population. And so there was became a symmetry or an equilibrium between the two camps. And this equilibrium made it clear that the world was not going to be a unipolar world but a bipolar world. And in our next segment, Walter, we're going to, of course, go in more how after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and we can talk a little bit about why that happened and the collapse of the East European and Central European socialist governments, why those governments collapsed. But after that, United States imperialism was like unanticipatedly now the unipolar power of the world. And the U.S. quickly created or tried to create another new world order. And this is the advent of what we might call the neocon philosophy, which in some ways was marginal in 1990 at the time the Soviet Union was collapsing, but became the consensus or is the consensus today as the U.S. embarks 
on the so-called new Cold War with China, which we believe is really an extension of the global class war phase of imperialism that began with the creation of the socialist bloc in 1945. It was muted, it was muffled. The United States assumed that China would end up being either destroyed or dismembered or just have its own Soviet-style counter-revolution where the capitalists would take control of the People's Republic of China. But because that hasn't happened, the U.S. has sort of rapidly and without debate moved back to a political position that was a consensus position from 1945 to 1990, the position of global class war. So the United States sees the existence of China today as a strong country led by a communist party, in spite of the fact that it has capitalist property relations in many sectors of its economy, in spite of the fact that it's integrated into the world economy, which as we know, is the world capitalist economy. In spite of that, the United States now views China as the leader, as the Soviet Union was once the leader of the global class camp of those who want to resist imperialism or who want to retain the independence of their country so that their land, their labor, their resources is for the betterment of their own people rather than for foreign imperialism. Anyway, Walter, I don't know if you have final words, but that's where we're going to go next to talk about the next stage of imperialism, the unipolar power of U.S. imperialism. Again, what we believe will be understood retrospectively as a very short-lived period in global politics. That's right. And now we're entering the period of, as the Pentagon calls it, great power competition against Russia and China, but really primarily against China, a tremendously dangerous development in the world. The United States, for instance, has just embarked on a $1 trillion upgrade of its nuclear arsenal. The United States is constantly carrying out provocative military maneuvers along China's border. This is something that has the potential to become catastrophic for all of humanity. And it's such an important issue, struggle for progressive people to wage to stop the emergence of this new Cold War with China. We'll get into all of that and more next time. All right, we're going to leave it right there. You've been listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back on Tuesday. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.